If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this March 25th, 2018. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Tons to get to in our first podcast in a couple of weeks. In hour number two, a major update on what's going on with the entire Penn State, uh, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky case, my involvement in it, and the preparations for the Paterno HBO movie, which come out on April the 7th, including a brand new interview that has never been revealed before that I think you'll find of great interest and relevance to the case. Also, by the way, later on in this first hour, the news hour, I will reveal how that case and the other thing I guess I'm most well known for right now, being an anti-Trump conservative, became intertwined in an utterly insane making and maddening fashion this week. Uh, which I'll explain in greater detail a little bit later on in this hour, but you will not want to miss that one because it's uh, just so infuriating and (laughs) so telling about where we are in this upside-down world in which we now live. But there's so much to get to. Some of it is, in fact, obviously related to Donald Trump. The big news this weekend has been the massive march across the country by uh, mostly young people regarding gun control. This, of course all as a result of the Valentine's Day massacre in Parkland, Florida. And, you know, I was impressed by the numbers of people that came out. I'm always a little bit skeptical, though, because this becomes a chicken or the egg situation. The media hypes it to no end. They make sure everybody knows this is a big deal. Celebrities give money to it. This becomes an event. And people want to be part of an event. I always wonder... If the media never said anything and, you know, if George Clooney didn't give money, I think Oprah gave money or whatever, if ever, and, and, and these people were just forced to organize this on their own, what percentage do you think would have shown up? I don't know what it is, but it's nowhere near 100%. It might only be 10%. Who knows? Because people like being part of an event, an event, especially young people. And if it's cool, if it's hip, it's the in thing to do. They're far more likely to participate. So while the numbers are impressive and they ought to scare some Republicans, because obviously this is almost all about gun control, being anti-NRA, and 
effectively being anti-Republican. So those numbers I don't think are insignificant, especially when you look at what happened in that Pennsylvania special election recently. And that was, you know, in an area of pretty rural Pennsylvania, Republican-held district that's pro-gun. And the Republican still lost. I predicted he would win by a very narrow margin. He lost by a few hundred votes, probably not even a thousand, but it still lost. A district that Republicans have no business losing. And so... This gun issue going into the November elections is going to be a big deal. And its I don't think it's going to be helpful to Republicans. Uh, I'm not sure that that's fair, 100%, but that's the reality of it. And so those numbers are scary if you're looking at it from an electoral standpoint. Of course, a lot of these people either won't vote or aren't even eligible to vote yet. But the reality is there's a lot of energy, a lot of energy on that side of this issue. And understandably so. Now, the part of this that I get a little bit more agitated about is that when these survivors, these kids, they become celebrities. And this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy now. And this is an area where you're not allowed to tell the truth, folks. It's just the reality of it. No one, especially in the mainstream news media, is ever going to say anything that's even remotely negative about these kids because they have the ultimate moral standing. They're survivors of a gun massacre, and everybody does and should have sympathy for them. I get all that. But celebrity is a drug. Let's be clear about that. It affects some people more than it affects others. But it is a drug. And these kids, I'm not suggesting they're making up their opinions, but they know why they've become celebrities a handful of them, including several that were on the cover of Time magazine this week. They know. They know what gets the media coverage. They know what gets them invited back on television. They know that the more pro-gun control they are, the more anti-Trump or Marco Rubio, which is just insane that he's been getting so much flack about this, but if they're anti-Republican, then they're going to get back asked back on television. And their celebrity will continue to grow, and so they will continue to think of themselves as being a big deal. And that is intoxicating, especially for a young person. So I, I do think that this is all driving itself. The media is driving the crowds, which drives the media. And these celebrity kids, they know exactly what to say. And they're, they're, you know, they're taking advantage of it. Again, I'm not suggesting they're making it up. But they know. People know in general. And kids are really good at knowing. I mean, I've got a five-year-old daughter. She knows what we want to hear and what we don't want to hear. She knows what narratives will work and what narratives won't to get what she wants. That just makes her human. It's frustrating as hell sometimes, but that's human. So I'm not really even criticizing these kids, frankly, I'm more critical of the news media for taking advantage of them and manipulating them for their own political purposes. And the idea that Marco Rubio somehow has gotten the brunt of this and several of these Parkland kids have realized that that's a good narrative for them. Attack Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio? First of all, Marco Rubio is, is hardly you know, far right on guns. And more importantly than that, he's the guy that actually showed up at that CNN town hall. So, so what? And he tried his best to be open and understanding and 
compromising. So what did he get from that? What, what, what reward did he get for that? Absolutely nothing. So what's the lesson? The lesson is don't engage these people because it can only be bad for you. I mean, it's but it works because he's a Florida senator. He's a Republican and they've decided he's the enemy. And it's some of the things that these kids have said, nobody else could get away with. Nobody. Even the media would call them out on it because it's been ridiculous. They've been basically calling him a killer. So, but because they're victims or they're, you know, they're victims, they're, they're survivors of a, of a massacre, then they have ultimate moral authority. They cannot be criticized. And, you know, that for, for someone like, like me, that's frustrating. I, you know, I, I, I don't understand that. To me, everybody ought to stand on their own, be able to be, if you're going to speak publicly, you ought to be able to be criticized. And, uh, you know, if, if you can't take it, you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. Uh, but that's not the way this is. These guys, are, a lot of them are getting, these kids are getting a free pass to say whatever they want because it suits the political agenda of those in charge. And that's not right. Uh, all right. So th this has been a, a very bizarre week, even by the standards of the Trump presidency. And uh, I, I wrote a column on Friday, which I urge you to check out. It'll be posted at freespeechbroadcasting.com, which is our website. If it hasn't been already, it will be shortly. Or you can just Google it uh, because it's, um, it's definitely worth checking out. It, it's kind of humorous. What, what I decided to do was to take all the crazy stories that happened this week. And this is not unusual. We've talked about this before, how there has been a desensitization that I have predicted from very early on in the Trump presidency that people just will get tired. And what normally would be outrageous doesn't even seem like that big of a deal anymore. But particularly with regard to the so-called conservative now I refer to it as state-run news media, and specifically Fox News Channel and talk radio. There, are, there have been several issues, particularly this week, that if Trump was a Democrat or if some other Democrat was the president, then Sean Hannity's hair would have been on fire. Fire! And so what I decided to do was I listed all of these Sean Hannity's hair would be on fire issues. And I gave them a grade one to five on the number of Sean Hannity's heads that are on fire. Like five was the most five Sean Hannity heads on fire and Mediate actually created a little graphic as quickly as they could, but it was, it's perfectly fine. It's literally Sean Hannity with his hair on fire. So, so here are, here are just some of them of the issues that occurred just this week, just this week. The president called Vladimir Putin to congratulate him on his fraudulent election, election victory, doing so against the, quote, do not congratulate warning of their own national security advisors. I want you to contemplate for just a moment, folks, if Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton had ever done that, they were going to and, and forget about the fact that there's allegations that Putin helped elect them. <laughs> Just put that aside for a second. That Vladimir Putin, now I know Obama did congratulate him before. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not, first, there's two things about this that drives me bananas. 
Since when is Barack Obama the standard by which we're judging Donald Trump? Right? I thought Barack Obama was the worst ever. More importantly, the context under which Barack Obama did that is completely different. That was before Russia meddled in our presidential election and may have played a key role in electing our current president. That's also, by the way, this is something that happened just after Russia poisoned the, the, the British diplomats or whatever you want to call them, but they, 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 they committed effectively they murder. This was a crime. Putin's a criminal. He's a murderer. This is not the same context that Obama did this in. But can you imagine, under this context, how many times Sean Hannity's hair would be on fire? Well, I could. I gave them all five. I gave I, That was a five Sean Hannity's hair on fire moment. The president attacked a special counsel of their own party, investigating their own campaign, and did so in a tweet which was riddled with typos and misspellings, even after they had to delete and repost it. Trump did this. Even his second tweet, he misspelled counsel three times. On his second try! Can you imagine if Obama did that? Of course, Obama, who uses all the best words and... According, this is what Trump would say. I use word all. I have all the best words. I went to the best schools. I'm so smart. <laughs> I love the poorly educated. <laughs> I mean, it's you can't make this stuff up. I gave Hannity three hair on fire, three three Hannity's head on fire for that one because I kind of think that if uh, Hillary, well, hell, if Hillary does anything, Hannity's hair is on fire. But I, I, that one was pretty hypocritical. The next one, the president had not just one, but two former mistresses dominating headlines with stories that were spiked through suspicious payoffs during the heat of the presidential campaign. What? Of course, I'm referring to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Now, as we're doing this podcast, the Stormy Daniels interview is airing on 60 Minutes on the East Coast. And this has been trending like number one or two on Twitter all day. And frankly, I don't get it. I, I really, I, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal in a moment, but I, I am baffled as to why all the hype for this. I mean, her lawyer has done a spectacular job hyping this. We already know he's had affairs and there are some aspects of the affairs that are important. I frankly think the Karen McDougal one is more important than, the, than the, the Stormy Daniels one, which I'll explain shortly. But if, not that Obama would ever have affairs, because, you know, he's a beta, but, you know, and Hillary wouldn't have an affair with man, that's for sure. But, all right, but, but let's pretend there was a Democratic president like Bill Clinton. Let's go back to the Bill Clinton era. Yep, Hannity would have had, there were, I gave that four Hannity's hair on fire. And that's being generous, just simply because it's mostly old news. But Hannity would have been all over this if it was Bill Clinton, but not when it's Donald Trump. The president appeared ready to sign a massive, bloated, extremely liberal spending bill to keep the government funded, but at the last second said he might veto it because it's not liberal enough on immigration. And then he signed it. <laughs> Can you imagine? That's another four hair on fire for Sean Hannity. Because that's what happened. Donald Trump got absolutely skunked 
by the spending bill. $1.3 trillion. He didn't get his wall. He didn't get anything. All sorts of Republicans are saying that Republicans got beat bad on this. Chuck Schumer's aide said, we're getting tired of all the winning. <laughs> Laura Ingram and her panties are all in a bunch. And so is Mark Levin's. Ah, well, we told you guys this. We warned you, you suckers. This was this is not new. And of course, you know, this happens on a Friday. By by Monday, they're gonna be on to something else. So they'll be able to say, well, we we held Trump's feet to the fire on the No, you didn't. Bullshit. You did not. You criticized him for half a day, and now you're gonna move on to something else. That spending's not gonna move on. You know, th- that debt we're we're carrying over to our children, our grandchildren, our great grandchildren, that ain't gonna move on. That ain't gonna just disappear. The wall isn't going to suddenly just grow out of nowhere. And Coulter now, for the 18th time, breaking up with Donald Trump, realizing that there's not going to be a wall. I told you there was never going to be a wall. I mean, seriously, are you people that dumb? Did you did you not realize there was never going to be a wall? Believe me. No, there was never going to be a wall. That was never, ever, ever going to happen. All I know is what's on the internet. No, there, there was never going to be a wall. And there's not going to be a wall. Because Trump is exactly the opposite of everything he says. He's not a fighter. He's a wuss. He's not a great negotiator. He gets run over. He's been run over in every negotiation so far. And he got run over this time. And even his own sycophants are admitting to it. Hannity, though, I don't, I don't know, if, I, I don't know honestly if Hannity even bothered to criticize him. He may have on this a little bit, but nowhere near four hairs on fire. That's for sure. The president claimed on Twitter that they could easily beat up and make cry our quote unquote crazy former two-term vice president. That happened this week. Donald Trump <laughs> said he could beat up Joe Biden and make him cry. And Trump calling anybody crazy is really rich. I mean, that's quite something. In this case, he might be right, but, you know, that that's the whole desensitization issue. Biden doesn't seem nearly as nuts to me as he did before Donald Trump was president. I used to think Biden was batshit crazy. Not so much anymore. He seems kind of somewhat rational, not from a political standpoint, because he's a liberal Democrat, but and, and way more liberal than he used to be. But at least he's somewhat tethered to the rational world, at least to a large degree. But that happened. I gave Hannity two hair on fire because I doubt he gave any mention of it at all. The president's lawyer for an investigation of Russian influence in in their winning presidential campaign suddenly quits, apparently because they won't take the lawyer's advice. Can you imagine if in the middle of all this, Russian investigation. After, by the way, I should have mentioned this, Trump had tweeted that it was fake news that his lawyers were leaving. That's what he did. A couple weeks ago, fake news, New York Times failing, they made the story up, my legal team is just fine. And then John Dowd leaves, just like the New York Times suggested that they would. This would have been three Sean Hannity's hair on fire. Instead, we got none. And by the way, there's new news about that out today. The lawyer to replace John Dowd and his wife, Joe DeGeneva and Victoria Tunsing, who, by the way, I have an 
odd connection to. But they were supposed to be added to the legal team. It turns out they can't do it because of conflicts of interest, which is really astonishing. Not because of what it means as far as what did or did not happen with Russia, but the fact that the president of the United States did not check, did not check on whether or not the lawyers he was hiring for his Russia defense could even take the case before he hired them. That's astonishing, folks. That is astonishing. By the way, just for the record, my weird, there's always a John Ziegler six degrees of separation in almost any story. So Joe DeGeneva and Victoria Tunsing are married. They have a son named Brady Tunsing. Brady Tunsing and I lived on the same floor as freshmen at Georgetown University. Apparently, he's a he's more of a right-wing nut job than I am, which I didn't realize at the time. But the Geneva and Tunsing are like D-list conspiracy right-wing nut jobs now. They weren't always, they were somewhat respectable during the Clinton era. They were on TV every night ripping Clinton. <laughs> and then now they've been on Fox, you know, re regurgitating uh, or or reevaluating or revamping uh, reestablishing their careers because Fox News Channel needs legal people, plausibly credible legal people to defend Trump. So they've decided that's the avenue that they're going to go down because it's good for their career. It'll get them on TV. There's a lot of people like that, by the way, who determine what they're going to say in any given situation based upon what will get them on TV. In, in my opinion, uh, Dershowitz, you know, OJ's lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, I'll never forgive him for being OJ's lawyer. You know, he's been a big Trump supporter. Why? Because Fox News will have him on all the time. Oh, look, Alan Dershowitz, famous lawyer. He's a liberal. He's defending Trump. He must be right. Same thing's happening with Jonathan Turley, who used to be credible. But because he'll say nice things about Trump, Fox will have him on all the time. That's good for these people. It gives them their drug. It gives them, it increases their celebrity, speaking engagements, lawyers' fees, whatever. Plus, they just like it from an ego standpoint. But anyway, the Geneva and Townsend are jokes at this point. They're jokes, and they can't even join the Trump legal team because Trump didn't even check into, or they didn't tell about, or there was some miscommunication about the fact that they've got a massive conflict of interest. That's low class. That's minor league. That is that is as minor league as it gets. But you're not going to hear about from Sean Hannity. And you're not going to get any of the three Hannity hair, hairs on fire that I gave him. A couple more here. Against their pleas uh, of their lawyers, of their advisors, the president moves to impose huge tariffs on China, sparking fears of a trade war and causing the stock market to have a mini meltdown. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if back before we were supposed to be protectionists, nationalists as conservatives or whatever the hell Republicanism is nowadays? Can you imagine if there was Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton deciding that we were going to impose huge tariffs on China, thus sparking inflation and a trade war and a meltdown of the stock market? All of a sudden, that would be huge. That would be massive. That would be 
you know, that would be four Hannity's hair on fire, is what I gave it in, in Mediate. And uh, instead, I guess people like Hannity are on board with this now. Nobody is on, there's nobody who knows anything about this issue who thinks this is a good idea. Trump's own advisor basically said, yeah, well, this won't be the end of the world. Oh, great. That's fantastic. Fantastic. Great. So we're doing something that at best won't be the end of the world. Things were going decently economically. I have no idea to what, if any degree, Trump deserved credit for that. But now Trump not only might actually turn the economy in the other direction, he's given the other side a legitimate narrative to explain if the economy goes in the other direction. Going into an off-year election. Great job, everybody. <laughs> just fantastic. Because that's all you need, is you just need an excuse. So now anything bad that happens, like the stock market tanking, it's because of the tariffs that Trump imposed that nobody thinks are a good idea. And then finally, the, uh, the president gets rid of yet another top aide, this time their second national security advisor, and do so just a few days after instructing their press secretary to tweet that the current national security advisor was going nowhere. <laughs> That's what happened. McMaster was rumored to be out by the news media. He had uh, his press secretary go out there, much to her embarrassment. Of course, I don't think she has the ability to be embarrassed, uh, Sarah uh, Sanders Huckabee, or Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And she said, nope, uh, I'm with the president and McMaster. Everything's fine. And then five days later, he's gone. And John Bolton is in. Now, uh, as far as the actual, and I gave this three Hannity hair on fire, but there were, I'm sure was none. Uh, the, the reality is that um, McMaster seemed like he was doing a pretty good job. Bolton is a guy who I have in the past, I have had some fondness for, but only in a certain role. In fact, I remember being at a, um, a David Horowitz event many years ago. This was back when I was a talk show host at KFI, and John Bolton was speaking. And I actually asked a question after the speech, and I complimented him as being the only guy left in the Bush administration with any balls. Everybody laughed. He even laughed because um, he does. He's got balls and he's a pretty smart guy. But here's the thing. Bolton in a Bush administration, I think, played an important and positive role because you had a bunch of wussies and you need a guy that's got the balls to keep everybody from going soft. So that's the role he was playing. And he was not the national security advisor. Um, and so it, it was good to have him as the outlier, as the exception that proved the rule. Now the problem is you got this president who is completely out of control. You can't trust. He's obsessed with pretending that he has balls. And now you've got a guy who is is hired because on Fox News Channel, he's been saying all these nice things about Trump and he's going to play to Trump's worst instincts and there's no one to rein Bolton in. So if you think about this as a team, right? Bolton, I think, fit well into the Bush team 
but he does not fit well into the Trump team, in my opinion. I think he's actually dangerous. Now, who the hell knows what's going to happen with this, if this North Korea summit ever occurs? He's talking. Trump's talking about a, a Russian-Putin summit now. I mean, these are all very dangerous situations, and uh, I'm I'm uncomfortable with Bolton playing to Trump's worst instincts. I don't think that Bolton's a bad guy. I don't think he's dumb. Uh, but I just think that the, in this particular situation, it could end up being something that we all uh, come to regret. But but the more important part of this, from the big picture, and this is something that the Hannity's of the world would be attacking a Democratic president for. I believe that McMaster is now the 25th top aide who has left the Bush, the Trump administration, either fired or resigned. 25. He's only been president for 14 months. Okay. That is one almost every two weeks. A little, it's a little bit more than every two weeks someone leaves. That is really tough to do. It's especially really tough to do when you've only been president for 14 months because usually. People don't leave until a year. <laughs> and then they don't usually leave until, ideally, until you get reelected. But this, if, if there's so much winning, if there's so much winning here, then why is everyone leaving? Why is there so much chaos? Why is there so much upheaval? There's never been, a, using the sports analogy again, there has never been a winning head coach in the history of any sport ever that has fired this many assistants or gotten rid of this many assistants or had this many leave or this many players leave, whatever analogy you want to use. There's never been a little bit of turmoil can be good. A little bit of turnover can be good. This is so far beyond that, that it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's just, it's just flat out ridiculous. There you go. Yeah. It's flat out ridiculous. It's obviously ridiculous. But to me, the most important thing is it's an indication there's something wrong, not just in his decision making and, the, and the, his love of chaos. But then obviously people internally, you know, some of them have been fired, some of them are left on their own, some of it's been ambiguous. This would not be happening if things were going well. If we were really winning anywhere near as much as we had been promised we would be winning, which we're not. You know, it's one of the more interesting things about Trump's personnel decision making, and I think this is this has really been borne out over the last couple of weeks with Tillerson and McMaster and with his lawyers. The best thing you can do if you're in the Trump orbit or the White House, whatever it is, and you think you might be on the way out, here's what you do if you want to survive. You leak to the New York Times or the Washington Post that you're getting fired. Because you are safe then for at least another week. You are, and maybe more. I mean, look what happens with Sessions. Sessions is somehow still around. But the reality is Trump will keep you just to fuck with the media. He will keep you just because he wants to be able to claim fake news. Ah, they found out something was going to happen. Now I'm not going to do it because I want to be able to claim it's fake news. Even, But then he, he ruins it by only waiting six, seven, eight, nine days. 
Sorry, you see, in Trump's world, seven, eight, nine days is a long time because he's got the attention span of a young child. Fortunately, some of us still remember seven, eight, nine days, and we go, wait a minute, you told us it was fake news two weeks ago. Now this is what's happening. So that's an important insight into his very distorted and dangerous thinking and decision-making. But here's what it also means, by the way. And nobody has more disdain for the news media than me, okay? Let's be that. Let's be clear about that. But by and large, while they've gotten some things wrong, the news media has done a decent job. I wish they had done one one thousandth of the job with Obama or Bill Clinton before him. The media has done a decent job on reporting accurately about Donald Trump. But a lot of what they have had to rely on were these, you know, unnamed sources, and and of course, whenever it's unnamed, nobody on the, in the Trump cult, the cult 45 is ever going to believe it. And so Trump calls it fake news. And, you know, the Trump people say, oh, we don't believe it. Of course, they all believe their own unnamed sources when it's something they want to believe. <laughs> like if it's from Devin Nunez or if it's some bullshit deep state conspiracy, then they believe it. Oh, we don't need any sources of that because we want to believe that. But unnamed sources mean nothing to the Trump cult. But here's the important part that we've learned in the last few weeks. These things keep happening exactly as the news media says that they're going to happen, which tells me that the sources are really actually pretty darn good. And more importantly, it tells me fake news is bullshit. Fake news means it's real, and I just don't want you to believe it right now. That's what fake news is. That's what Donald Trump means when he says it's fake news. Almost all the time, there's at least some, if not total, truth to it. And that's important because if now that we have enough information to come to that conclusion, now I think we can evaluate a whole lot of other things very differently, including a lot of what we think we know about what's going on in the Russia investigation. Because to me, these are the same outlets, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the same reporters that are reporting a lot of this stuff. So you're, what you're telling me is, this is real. This isn't bullshit. This isn't made up. This is not fake news. These sources are good. And the more Trump says fake news, the more now I believe it. I'm now to the point where if Trump says something is fake news, I go, oh, okay. So thanks, thanks for letting us know it's true. Or at least there's some truth to it. That's the reality of it. Now, um, I mentioned that <laughs> there is this. Well, I mentioned a couple of things. I want to. I want to uh, revisit this uh, Stormy Daniels, Karen McDougal situation because this is a big story tonight on sixty Minutes. <laughs> um, I already mentioned that I'm I'm baffled as to why this is getting so much publicity, and it's mostly because Stormy Daniels' lawyer has really. I mean, wow. Uh, a-plus media manipulation by this guy. Uh, Anderson Cooper has been... I don't know if Anderson Cooper's getting paid by him or vice versa, but, but I mean, Anderson Cooper has been basically giving his entire CNN show to this issue all week, and then he's doing the interview on 60 Minutes with Stormy Daniels. I don't find a Stormy Daniels story to be that interesting. Now, apparently she's claiming that she was threatened to keep silent. Okay, but I, I don't know what the proof of that is. And again, I haven't seen the, sh the show yet. Maybe there is proof of that who did that come from i mean that it's somewhat interesting doesn't surprise me but unless you get it right back unless it's directly from trump it's irrelevant 
I mean, he had, and it seems like it was a pretty short affair. It might have been a one night deal with Stormy Daniels. His her lawyer is, you know, implied she has some proof. I I don't know. I don't even know if that would matter. Who doesn't believe it? Who doesn't believe it? It's obviously true. Now, the fact that there was a payoff in the middle of a campaign is interesting. Uh, you know that uh, by his lawyer, that's that's certainly interesting. I think it's in a rational world it would be relevant, especially to evangelical Christians. But we don't live in that world anymore. So I don't understand why Stormy is is getting so much publicity. It's not going to impact anything about Trump's approval ratings. Maybe you know marginally, but you know his his approval ratings are always going to be between forty two and thirty seven percent, depending on which direction the wind's blowing. This isn't going to change that. I actually think that the Karen McDougal story was way more interesting and, frankly, more damaging. Now, I found it more interesting because she's hot. Stormy Daniels is just gross. But Karen McDougal is hot. And I have to tell you, um, as a human being, it's not just because he was having the—I don't agree with having the affair. But part of me thinks better of Donald Trump that he was able to pull this off because this was not a one-night deal. This was not a— he offered to pay her apparently, and she didn't want to be paid. And they can—they had an affair for many months while his wife is with a newborn child. All of that is incredibly wrong. But she really liked him. She was in love with him. And she's a Playboy model. She's classy. She's smart. She's a Republican. As I mentioned, she's smoking hot. Did I mention she's smoking hot? She's very attractive. Now. It's interesting to me a couple of things about the Karen McDougal story. One is, I think that her story is more relevant. I've written about this at Mediate than Stormy because her situation was she got involved in a catch and kill with the National Enquirer. The National Enquirer did Donald Trump's bidding during the campaign to capture her story and kill it effectively by paying her hundred forty thousand dollars supposedly for her to do some columns and covers and all that stuff. But what that here's what that really means. The National Enquirer was both an arm of the Trump campaign during the campaign, all, going all the way back into the 2016 primaries when it really mattered. And maybe even more importantly than that, because I do think that matters. I think if we had known 100% that the National Enquirer was an arm of the Trump campaign, that they were doing work on behalf, not just a little work, they were doing overt work with payoffs and everything to protect Donald Trump and to forward his interests. I would like to believe that during the primaries, that might have gone made some people go, whoa, wait a minute. Really? Really? Okay, this, is, this doesn't feel right. This does not feel right that we're going to have our presidential candidate, a guy who is literally in bed with the National Enquirer and vice versa. But here's the other part of this. Had we known, forget about the fact that they're just an arm of the Trump campaign, which to me would have mattered, and maybe to some thinking people would have mattered. But here's the really bigger problem. You don't just have the National Enquirer as part of your campaign. You have the National Enquirer with leverage over you. Think about that, folks. Had we known during the 2016 primary that the National Enquirer owns Donald Trump, because they have leverage over him. They have dirt on him. He can't cross them. He's a, The National Enquirer is effectively what people think Putin is to Trump. 
They've got him by the balls. And you want this guy as your president? Forget about how low class that is and troubling that is and all the conflicts that that creates. It's just flat out wrong. Not to mention... It's just flat out ridiculous. And that and that's what happened. So that's, to me, why the Karen McDougal story is important. I also find it interesting from a human standpoint because no one can figure out why Karen McDougal did the story, did the interview with, with Anderson Cooper. I think I know why Karen McDougal did the story. It had nothing to do with the legal battle. I think she feels like she can win the legal battle. Her lawyers have said, you're going to get sued by the National Enquirer or whatever. You can win the legal battle. If you really want to tell your story, go for it. What was she doing? I feel pretty confident the only reason why she came forward was because of Stormy Daniels. Stormy Daniels' affair happened at exactly the same time at exactly the same place as one of the locations of her affair. I think she was pissed off. I think she's like, whoa, wait a minute. I'm the real mistress here. I'm the Playboy model. I loved him. I thought he loved me. We went on for 10 months and Stormy Daniels, some low-rent porn star, is I now find out that he was having sex with her in the same Lake Tahoe location the day after I left? No. No, I'm not going to. No, I'm not putting up with that. So I think she was defending her own dignity and her own, her own place in the world. I don't think she wanted to be looped in or, or you know, basically put in the same batch as Stormy Daniels. I think this is a class issue. I think she looks, as I do, as Stormy Daniels is classless. And I look, I'm a high-class mistress. I'm Playboy. I dated Bruce Willis, which, by the way, also tells me, apparently, from what I can tell from the picture, she was dating Bruce Willis at a very similar time that she was dating Donald Trump. So I'm not 100% sure she has moral authority on who, who was... Sleeping with whom at what time? I, I don't know that for sure, but it's you can search it yourself on Google. But she's clearly got a uh, a thing for famous guys. Uh, it, it's funny she said well, uh, when when asked why she was attracted to him, she said, "Well, he's a good looking guy, and he's got good posture. I really like good posture." I'm like what? <laughs> Wait a minute! You're a Playboy model, so you're so you're <laughs> you're. Your standards are a decent-looking guy who's nice to you and has good posture. Where do I sign up for that? <laughs> I got very fine posture. I'm very nice, and I think I'm even better looking than Donald Trump. So at least certainly that era of Donald Trump. That What? No. What's really going on here is you've got a thing for famous guys. And, you know, everyone, you know, people have different reactions to the fame drug. And I think that's also part of why she decided to do the Anderson Cooper interview, uh, much to the um, surprise by, to a lot of uh, legal analysts, given her agreement that she has with the National Enquirer. Now, um, one other uh, story about Trump before I move on to other things. I, I did write another column for media. You can find it at freespeechbroadcasting.com about the status of the Russia investigation. I've already mentioned that. He's had some lawyer issues there. I'm not going to go into great detail right now because I'm sure this is going to be an ongoing saga, obviously. It's not going anywhere. But I do think it's important to point out, uh, as I've been trying to figure out, okay, what really did and did not happen here? 
and trying to evaluate Trump's own actions are very difficult because Trump is a weird guy. Trump does not think logically. He's not that smart. He only thinks about what's good for him today. He does not play chess. He doesn't even play checkers. He may be only playing shoots and ladders. And so therefore, it's it's exceedingly difficult, at least for me, to evaluate. Normally, I'm pretty good at I can evaluate, okay, what did someone do based upon the way they react to the situation that is before them? It's difficult to do that with Trump. But the way he is now going after Mueller, and based upon what we now think we know where Mueller is in this whole thing, it's it's very obvious to me, and I go into this in the article, it's very obvious that Trump is scared about something very serious. What exactly that is, I don't know. But it is exceedingly difficult to come to any logical other logical conclusion than the fact that Trump is rightfully frightened about something that Mueller either has found or is going to find. Whether that's collusion, obstruction, financial crimes, who the hell knows at this point? I don't know. But it is clear to me that Trump would not be reacting this way if he didn't have something very serious to be worried about. And the pushback on this idea of firing Mueller from Republicans has been pretty anemic. There's been some guys, Lindsey Graham pleasantly surprised me, since Graham has sucked up to Trump on numerous occasions, especially on the golf course, John McCain, you can count on, you know, uh, Jeff Flake, Ben Sass, that t- those type of people. But the, the blowback, if he ever were to get Mueller fired, I think would be limited. I think the McCabe thing, the FBI firing of the FBI director, just or former deputy FBI director, just before he got his pension, I think was kind of a dry run for that. <laughs> and there was <clears throat> very little pushback by Republicans on that. And so Trump knows what he can get away with. I do believe that that would be a red line that would cause, certainly in the media and the Democratic side, it would create a nuclear explosion. But in the end, I'm not sure Trump couldn't get away with it. I don't think it would be smart for him because I I actually think his best chance, his best chance at this point is for Mueller to be fair. I, I think that Mueller's going to be fair. I, I think there's a very good chance that Mueller comes back with something that's bad, but not devastating enough to force Trump to be removed from office. And I believe, as I've said for many, many months now, the most logical scenario, which rarely ever happens, but this is, seems pretty clear at this point, the Democrats take the House, they start impeachment proceedings after the Mueller investigation is complete, whenever that is, uh, it, he gets impeached, it goes to the Senate. The uh, Senate decides to acquit because no one has an incentive for Trump to be removed from office. And then he runs for re-election as an impeached president. That's the most likely scenario. Um, so check that column out at uh, freespeechbroadcasting.com. As I've mentioned before, I, I have been part for uh, quite a while of this anti-Trump conservative group called the Meeting of the Concerned that gets together every couple of weeks in Washington, D.C., and I even was part of a, a, a an effort to try to sign a petition to protect Mueller, I think, that was in the Washington Post at some point last year. And these, you know, this, these meetings were kind of a pain in the ass for me because I'm on the West Coast and they're early in the morning and getting up early and doing it by phone or by Skype and the audio sucked and you know, there's a bunch of people sitting around a table. These are people like Bill Crystal and David Frum and... Uh, you know, other pretty 
fairly prominent. Jennifer Rubin, uh, you know, there, there are people whose names, if you follow the conservative movement, you would know. And some others, you know, people, some people I really do respect. But it was always, it was very difficult to participate because you don't know when you're allowed to talk. And sometimes the audio wasn't very good, especially on Skype. And so I wasn't really that into this, especially since, frankly, some of the discussions were bizarre. I mean, there was like a, this obsession with uh, somehow getting the 25th Amendment invoked, which is just fantasy. I mean, that's just never going to happen. Uh, I never understood why, you know, people were so obsessed with that. You must, you must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? Yeah, I mean, the, Trump is never going to be removed by the 25th Amendment. It's not going to happen. But a lot of people in this group seemed, you know, pretty convinced that somehow that was possible. Anyway, uh, I never gave this group a ton of thought. I mean, I, I we had a, a lot of our guests came from this group, either directly or indirectly. And I realized a couple weeks ago that I had stopped getting the emails for this group, like when the meeting was. And I didn't know, okay, was, did the meetings stop happening? Did I get removed? Did I, did I go into spam? So I I um, I emailed one of the directors and said, hey, what's going on? Never got a response. So I waited another, I don't know, week or whatever. I, I emailed them back. Hey, I'm just curious. <laughs> what happened to the emails? And then I get an email from somebody else saying, hey, can I talk to you? Somebody else from the group. And I'm like, all right. This is going to be good because <laughs> I've been around the block a few times. Not my first rodeo. Something is up. And I'm not 100% sure what it was up. What was up? I had a few ideas as to what might be up. Well, uh, even I was, uh, was <laughs> well, I'll just tell you what happened and you can decide for yourself what my reaction would have been or should have been. So uh, we set up the time to call and the guy calls me and he says, uh, you know, look, I'll just get right to the point. Um, it's come to our attention that you've done a lot of work on this uh, Penn State, uh, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky thing. And uh, we feel like this is very dangerous for our group. And that if this, uh, you know, ever became associated with us, that we could take a lot of criticism uh, for what you're doing here. And so therefore, we've just decided that uh, we're going to go our separate ways. <laughs> and I'm as he's telling this to me, I'm not shocked because I thought, is that what this is? I'm literally laughing at him. I'm literally laughing at him. I mean, this is a group of people who are supposed to be taking this principled stand for what is right, standing up against self-interest for Donald Trump, putting forward all sorts of crazy ideas like, you know, let's invoke the 25th Amendment to remove him from office. But I'm <laughs> I'm too, too much of a nut job because... I've actually investigated something that I know to be true, or not to be true, actually, for the last six years, devoted my life to it. You guys ought to be like applauding what I'm doing. And uh, here I am, and to me, the, maybe the worst part was to never even ask me about it, right? Never even, never even, and if I hadn't emailed anybody, I probably would never even have gotten an explanation. Just, just, and, and I've talked to a couple other people in the group this has not been a discussion within the group. So basically, here's what happened. Somebody must have seen a tweet or something, got offended by it, went to the leadership and said, do we realize that this John Ziegler 
is is doing this on the on the Penn State Joe Paterno January Sandusky story. He's not accepted the conventional wisdom on that story, the story of which I know nothing about <laughs> that he's devoted his whole life to. We must stop this. This could make us look bad. <laughs> Seriously, dude. Seriously. So and of course the timing of it was particularly hilarious because within the next week or two is we're supposed to have a uh, massive uh, intended cover story uh, basically destroying the entire narrative of the case in a major national magazine, which I will, if it happens, I, with great pleasure, I will forward to everybody in the group. Uh, but that just, just told me a whole lot about the way the world is. I mean, not that I didn't know this already, but that it was actually, I couldn't care less about being part of the group, but it was still depressing. I'm like, seriously? This is a group that's supposed to be about principle, about truth, about standing up for what you believe. And something that has and this is not a business, by the way. It's not like it's not like we're all employees or something, or that, that I've ever even I've ever used that uh branding to talk about my view of the story. I mean, they're completely separate. They could not be more separate. And yet, uh, this happened in in the most um unprofessional way possible. Speaking of uh, unprofessional and bizarre, I had something else really strange happen this week. I mean, really, even by my standards, really strange. Um, I don't watch too many TV shows. My wife watches a lot of crap reality TV, and occasionally I'll try to get involved. Like, I'll try to watch The Bachelor with her just, just so that we have something to talk about. One of the TV shows that I have watched a, a lot over the last several years uh, is called The Goldbergs. Now, the reason why I watch The Goldbergs is because it's basically about my childhood. <laughs> the Goldbergs is a story, is a, a TV show on ABC about uh, this young kid who grows up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, just north of Philadelphia, where I grew up, in the 80s, which is exactly when I grew up. And, and it was, the show used to be very, very focused on Philadelphia 80s stuff, including a lot about all my favorite sports teams, the Philadelphia Eagles, the Sixers, the Flyers, the Phillies. I mean, a lot of, I mean, it, it literally, it's like a show made for me. And it used to be really funny and really good and really heartwarming. So I would watch it religiously. And uh, a couple of years ago, I guess it was like 2015, I could tell that the show was starting to lose it mainly because the show is about a kid who starts as being prepubescent, and then, of course, he goes through puberty, which changes everything. Before he's going through puberty, the show is one thing, and then after puberty, the main character, Adam Goldberg is his name, then everything changes. Well, the show was a hit, so they're desperate to keep it going. And they've done all sorts of crazy things, which I don't even know that they, the audience even realizes they've done. Like, for instance... There's a sister in the show who for two consecutive years was heading off to college. In other words, in other words, they, they basically just stopped everybody. They moved everybody's age back a year because they, they wanted to be able to get another year, another season out of the show. And little things started happening that really started to piss me off. And, and then, in fact, there was one, well, I think the first time I ever decided to tweet at the creator of the show, Adam Goldberg, I think it was because they had done a show. This is so strange. They had done a show about him and his dad going to Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia. 
Now, Veteran Stadium was the, the, the Phillies and the Eagles stadium in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, okay? It no longer exists. And the whole show somehow was about, and I don't even remember what the premise was, but somehow most of the show revolved around the fact that they went to these urinals at the at Veteran Stadium that were like latrines, you know, like trough urinals where everyone just stands in front of a trough and pees. And and somehow I guess he was afraid of doing. I don't even remember, I don't even remember what the premise was, but this was a huge part of the show. And I'm like, wait a minute, there were no latrines at Vet Stadium. That did not happen. And I even investigated it because you know, if you know me, you, you know I don't just fly off the handle on anything. I find out what I'm talking about before I mention mention. So I go, I talk to my friends from back, you know, back in the day. Hey. Were there ever any latrines at the vet? I'm looking online, and I, there's no sign of any latrines ever at Veteran Stadium. However, there were latrines, and maybe still are, at Franklin Field, which is another stadium where the Eagles played a few games uh, in Philadelphia, where University of Pennsylvania still plays. And I thought, did he mix that up? Did he mix up Franklin Field and Vet Stadium? So I tweet at him, and I, to my knowledge, I got no response. I said, hey, Adam... You screwed this up. There are no latrines at Vet Stadium. And I didn't think anything of it. I didn't, like, keep tweeting at him or anything. I just tweeted and never got a response. Never really thought to get a response because he's the creator of massive hit TV show. So over time, occasionally then, as the show got worse and worse, I would, I think I've, in total, before this week, I may have tweeted at him four times. Four times I've said things like, you know, boy, I really wish you would have given this show the proper send off because now it sucks and, you know, it's gone on too long and, you know, I'm a big former fan and blah, blah, blah. Again, it mostly just out of frustration, never thinking I'm going to hear anything. For the last several days, this guy, Adam F. Goldberg, and his mom, and the person who plays his mom on the TV show have been tweeting at me relentlessly relentlessly, which I can take. I'm a big boy. Fine. You want, but it's bizarre. It's he's, there has to have been at least a dozen tweets, if not more, his, his Trump like minions have been all over me. And then the most, the weirdest part is he accused me. He, he actually created a tweet, taking three of my old tweets, criticizing him and putting it into a pic into a picture in one tweet of a picture of him as a kid looking as geeky as possible with big glasses and looking like a loser like when he was 10 or 11 years old which is when the story first began that's when the TV show first began and he refers to me as having bullied him and how he has survived bullies his whole life and the whole show is about overcoming bullying and John shouldn't watch the show anymore and I'm like what is going on here? This is bizarre. I did not bully him. He's an adult. By the way, he's making it sound like I'm bullying this 11-year-old kid. He's an adult making many millions of dollars from having created this hit TV show. And he's upset because I tweeted at him. I tweeted at him, like I said, to my knowledge, four times over three years. One of which, it all began with a substantive criticism that he never responded to, which, by the way, I think is what set him off, because he clearly remembered all these tweets from years ago. I'm a nobody. Why do you even, why are you even worried about this? <laughs> I mean, my gosh, the insecurity was obvious and overwhelming. Also, by the way, so was the narcissism. I mean, my God, 
and, and, and I now view the whole show totally differently now. I used to think that his obsession with himself was kind of cute. Now I'm like, oh, my God, he's like a Trump-level narcissist. He's a wuss. He's... He's a complete narcissist and a wuss who, who's wrapping himself in victimhood. Because I tweeted, again, these tweets, they weren't like, they, they were a little harsh, but there was nothing, there was nothing over the line, anything close, and nothing close to bullying. So if, you, if you're on Twitter, check that, check out my, my timeline at Sigmund Freud, because it's pretty hilarious stuff that uh, Adam F. Goldberg has been doing uh, to me over the last several days couple other quick things before we leave hour number one and make sure you do check out hour number two because we've got a great interview and an important update in hour number two coming up. But um, in the realm of sports, obviously the NCAA Final Four has now been set. And a lot of the world is talking about Loyola of Chicago and Sister Jean. I'm fascinated by Sister Jean. She's the 98-year-old nun from Loyola of Chicago who is like the team mascot or the team pastor. And she praise with them before the game and ever I mean she's a, a national obsession and now that they're going to the final four for the first time in many 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 years the um she's going to be even bigger this year I mean it, this week it's just going to be crazy it's going to be sister Jean 24 7 and it's a great story I mean they're an 11 seed they had even though they're a good team they no one thought they were going to the final four they're a small school they're not from a big five conference but what fascinates me from the um, celebrity media standpoint is that invariably, especially in this short attention span Twitter era, if someone like a sister Jean became super famous overnight, especially when they really didn't do anything to deserve it, when it got to this level, or even before it got to this level, but certainly by the time it gets to the next weekend when when the Final Four hits crescendo, there would be inevitably a backlash, right? We would, there would be some reason for people to stop stop liking her or start disliking her. There would be some scandal that we brought up in her in her background. There would be some reason for people to have a backlash against Sister Jean. And what I'm fascinated by is this is almost like the perfect proof of this, because it doesn't seem like that's possible with her. I mean, she's a 98 year old nun. Right. So so I guess what I'm curious to see is if there is some sort of backlash eventually against Sister Jean, it means that nobody can possibly survive in this era of of, of becoming an instant celebrity without there being a backlash, because if she can't do it, nobody can. I mean, the the funny part to me is that the media, you know, is just completely in love with her. Yet I'm sure if they asked her her opinions on a lot of issues, they would be beside themselves. Like, I'm I'm guessing she's probably not in favor of same-sex marriage or sex before marriage or, I mean, there's probably, I don't know. There's probably, maybe she's even a Trump voter for heaven's sakes. I mean, that would really end it right there. That would be one of the few things that might end it right now. If it, if it came out that Sister Jean voted for Trump, that would cause a backlash and she would come right back down to earth and the media would go, never mind. Because uh, uh, I, I, I frankly think Loyola Chicago is probably going to lose to Michigan in the Final Four anyway. But they, who knows? They're playing just amazing basketball and the Sister Jean story is fantastic. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'd love to see him make it all the way. If only to see what happens with Sister G. Of course, of course, the other thing is she's 98. She could die. That would really be horrible. How horrible would that be? <laughs> then we would know there is no God, right? That would pretty, pretty much be a declaration. There is no God, at least no Catholic God, if Sister Jean on the verge of the final four dies at the age of 98. Uh, and certainly stranger things have happened. She's undergoing a hell of a lot of stress for the age of 98. Uh, also, speaking of the final four, Villanova has made it. And um, <laughs> I've told this story before, but I don't get too many opportunities to tell it, and it's worth telling again. So I've got to tell my Jay Wright story. Jay Wright is the head basketball coach at Villanova. They made the, the Final Four for the third time under him. Uh, they won the national championship two years ago. But here's, again, there's always a six degrees of John Ziegler. Almost always. But here's the six degrees of John Ziegler story. Jay Wright grew up. Uh, in the same basic town that I did, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Remember I already mentioned about the Goldbergs. Well, Jay Wright went to the public school uh, where I should have gone, which was Council Rock High School. It's now two different schools, but back then it was just one, Council Rock. I went to the Catholic school, Holy Ghost Prep. Anyway, long story short, Jay Wright was a basketball star, as you might expect, at Council Rock. And after college, I guess he was looking for a gig, and he came back. And he was coaching their high school team. At least he was coaching their summer league team. This is a guy who's now, he's won a national championship, and he might win his second one in, within the next week. And he's, he's coaching this high school summer league team. And I was the manager of my high school team. Basketball was a big deal at Holy Ghost, uh, even though we were almost all white. But we were for all white, we were really good. And I, I was not big enough or good enough to play because I was a shrimp in school. Be, I grew way too late for it to matter. But I was the manager for four years. I took care of everything, statistics and water bottles and equipment and uh, you know, ankles and you know, wrapping and all. I did everything. And um, as part of my duties, I helped run the summer league. So uh, it's a summer league. And summer league is pretty informal. I mean, you play, you wear uniforms, but... A lot of times, not everybody shows up. I mean, you normally you have a, a full team, but you don't have the whole team. Anyway, long story short, this one day for Summer League, Holy Ghost was playing Council Rock. And Holy Ghost only had four guys show up. So I'm there. I'm helping running the Summer League. And I'm like, hell, I go to Holy Ghost. I'll be the fifth guy so we can play. So I put on the uniform and we play against Council Rock. And we win. And I think I scored like eight points or something in a, in a varsity summer league game. And so I was I was very proud of myself. I'm like, this is this is great. We we beat Council Rock. I, I participated, I, I helped the cause a little bit. And I was heading back to the scorer's table to get ready for the second game because I'm gonna keep score. Because not usually in summer league, you played like two or three games a night. So I'm walking past Council Rock's huddle. And Jay Wright is pissed at his team. He is furious. I'm not kidding. For a summer league, this is as pissed as any coach I've ever seen. And he, he, he doesn't realize that I'm walking past the huddle. And he says to his team, You guys lost to a team that had to play their goddamn manager! <laughs> and I'm like three feet away. I'm like, yep, that was me. 
<laughs> so it's, I've always followed Jay Wright's career as he's gone from Hostra to Villanova and now national champion, now back to the Final Four. But the funny part now is I've told my daughter this story. And my daughter loves the story so much, she can recognize Jay Wright the moment he's on television. So now, the moment he comes on, she's like, Daddy, is that the guy that yelled at you? <laughs> yeah, that's that's him. That's my, my basketball claim to fame, Jay Wright. So if it's Jay Wright and Sister Jean in the championship game, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be very conflicted. <laughs> it could happen. It could happen. All right. Um, and one last thing on the sports front. Uh, Tiger Woods has continued to come out of oblivion. The Phoenix rising from the ashes and then the Masters is coming up. I don't know when the next time we're going to do a podcast is. So I just want to mention, I, I am amazed by what Tiger Woods has been doing. He deserves all the credit he's been getting. It's astonishing, this comeback. I never thought this was possible. But, but... There is, he can only go so far. I'm still not convinced he's ever going to win a major. He might, if he keeps this up long enough, just by chance, he'll win a PGA Tour event or two. He will not win the Masters. I, that's that's what I'm going to, I'm going to stake my golf reputation on this. He will not win the Masters. He cannot drive the golf ball consistently enough where you have to do it at Augusta National. I actually think he might have a real good shot if he keeps putting this well, and he's been putting ridiculously well. See, that's the thing. People think, oh, he's doing so great, he'll just keep improving. No, 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 no. In the old days, when Tiger putted nearly this well, he won. Now he's putting great just so he can contend because his driving sucks. Okay, but if he keeps putting like this, I actually think he's got a hell of a shot at the U.S. Open at Shinnecock Hills because there are no trees there. It's relatively short. He can hit irons off the tee if it's playing hard and fast and it's dry. I, I, I think Tiger will be very tough to beat at Shinnecock if he's putting this well. Of course, if he's not, then nothing matters. But I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, as much as I will actually root for him to a certain degree, which I never thought was possible either, uh, I do not think that Tiger Woods will win the Masters. He'll probably contend. If he puts well, he'll make the cut, and he'll be close enough for CBS to be happy, but uh, he's not going to end up winning it. All right, um, that does it for the uh, news hour of this edition of the World According to Zig podcast. Make sure you pay attention and listen to and share not only this hour, but hour number two, which is an important update on the whole Penn State uh, Paterno-Sandusky situation as the Paterno movie is uh, close to being aired by HBO, and I'm releasing a brand-new interview in hour number two, so don't miss that. And as always, I only ask two things of you. Number one, please share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, do yourself a favor. If you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, she, when you sleep, you sheets, please pay attention to this important message. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. 
That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.